This is hell. Hello, hello. This is producer Lindsay. If you were expecting uh, Chuck Mertz's voice to come in just now, uh, Chuck isn't here today because he's got other stuff to do. Other work to do, I guess. Um, But we are here to play some staff picks. And it's November 1st, 2022. So happy Dia de los Muertos. Or uh, Sawin, as the whites call it. Uh, And I hope everyone else uh, had a happy Halloween yesterday. And also a safe and restful Halloween weekend. Because that's when everybody celebrates, I guess. Uh, Which I'm acutely aware of because my birthday is two days before Halloween, the 29th. This year was on a Saturday. So I just want to say if any of my friends uh, remember to text me <laughs> during their Halloween weekend about my birthday, like, you guys are the real ones. So yeah, this is my birthday and I also had to work all weekend because I work at the farmer's markets and they're on the weekends. So I didn't have a ton of time to prepare to write everything out. Because as soon as I start to write down the things that I think I might want to say with uh, this one episode where uh, I'm going to talk the whole time. When I start to write it down, I just there's so many ideas, I don't know what to write next. And so that's why I tend to rely on improv when I get stressed out, you know? <laughs> you never know what the future holds until... It becomes a present and you have to decide what you're going to do. So uh, I'm thinking about that also. You know, I was just playing, if you were tuning in a few minutes ago, um, I was just playing Jamie Branch's first album, Fly or Die. And I'm playing that because, again, Dia de los Muertos, Samhain, Halloween, it's a time. They say the veil is thin. I don't know what the veil is, but, um, you know, we are supposed to remember the people who have passed and uh, we lost Jamie Branch back in August and I didn't know her personally but I don't know if you were just listening to that music it's really beautiful and it really meant a lot to me as a um, as a female musician um, an improviser Uh, I play the flute and for the last few years I've pretty much exclusively practice improv. Um, And like I stopped playing classical music and just play whatever I feel like playing. And Jamie as a trumpet player uh, really taught me how to um, make myself hurt, to play like I want people to actually hear me. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure people, you know, somebody listening to this show maybe knew her. Um, so, hope y'all are taking care of yourselves. Uh, you know, we have lost many, many people in the last couple years because of COVID and just inequality and poverty and, you know, the things that make us sick and whatever. 
But anyways, I I know Jamie was really, I know Jamie was really cool even though I I saw her a couple times play and I was too afraid to introduce myself to her because like I said her music meant a lot to me. Um and I really regret that. <laughs> you know, uh I didn't think the last time I saw her play would have been the last time. Um and so that reminds me of something else I want to say on a, a brighter note as a back to uh, my market jobs ending was um, it was nice to meet a couple of listeners at the market uh, shout out to Howell who visited me a few times in Andersonville and um, introduced yourself to me because like I said I, <laughs> I'm a nervous uh, shy person at times and I know how hard that can be and um, yeah Howell if you're listening shoot me an email because I have a question for you. My email is lindsay.gory, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y dot G-O-R-R-Y at gmail.com. So, anyways, um, I'm going to be playing, I should say what interview I'm going to be playing, um, which is an interview from 2019 with uh, artist and writer Jenny O'Dell who wrote the book How to Do Nothing, which I hope everybody <laughs> listening has already uh, gotten a chance to flip through at least by now. Um, I think it's interesting how this was recorded in 2019 and became probably even much more relevant after the pandemic. Uh, her book is called How to Do Nothing, and it focuses on the attention economy. So, um, you know, not only is it a manifesto for rest, um, but we all do have to do things in order to survive. So um, it's really about, you know, this modern day economy and uh, social media and how, uh, you know, our individual individuality is like commodified and I don't know I don't know I'm gonna let her talk about it but it's just like it feels like social media is just such a part of my brain because yeah it was my birthday I just turned 27 which means I've had Instagram for like uh, I think like 11 years now, <laughs> like I think I was 16 when I got it at Facebook in middle school, like it's, I don't know, it's so be kind to us uh, millennial Gen Z people because we're just, who knows what that did to us um, having our adolescence um, in the new world of social media. Um. So, let's see, what else do I have here about why did I, why am I picking this? Well, you know, it's funny because I totally forgot to mention when I'm talking about my birthday that it's also my sister's birthday because I'm a twin. I'm an identical twin. And uh, my sister was born three minutes after me, natural birth. You know, these days, uh, I was just talking to my friend who worked in a, like a birth area of a hospital, whatever it's called. And uh, she told me there were like three twin births while she was working there for like nine months or something. And 
they were all cesarean section. She's like, they literally just, they, well, they plan it because they, they, they want to plan what day and whatever. And they label every multiple pregnancy high risk. So it's like they're high risk before even foreign. But anyways, they're also, it's also very expensive to have multiples in a hospital. Like, I don't have the exact numbers, but I have read it before. It's like two to three times more expensive to have twins um, in a hospital than a single birth. And uh, yeah, I'm, my, I don't think, uh, you know, yeah, luckily my dad's a mailman because in his, I guess the insurance covered it because his paycheck would not. <laughs> but anyways, uh, the reason I, this, I think this is relevant is social media. It's like, we all have these individual profiles and, uh, you know, that people are making a living off of just like their personality or whatever. They're called influencers. So in this age of influencers, I present you with a question. What about twinfluencers? Because there are accounts out there, lots of them, and especially identical twins. Um, you know, is it a meshment if you can like never separate from each other and like you like you two people to one social media profile is that is that okay <clears throat> i mean lots of people find twins creepy i'll thank the movie the shining for that um but i have to try and stay away from those kinds of accounts because me and my sister don't have that kind of relationship we're separate people we live in different places now since college um and it's it can be hard to uh have people's expectations for your how twins should be projected onto you um and lots of people are i'm like basically there's one set of identical twins on the tiktoks or whatever um and they make lots of funny dances and they're awesome at dancing and whatever but these comment sections are like <laughs> I gotta stay out of them. They're so creepy. They're so weird. And, um, yeah, basically all I'm trying to say is I might have some more statistics for you later after the show, um, if I get around to pulling it up, um, you know, about the differences between twins and non-twins. Um, but I'm just saying, like, I think that, uh, birth is kind of a subconsciously uh i don't know it it impacts the, us a lot in ways we don't understand and i think that humans are very individualistic and it might have something to do with the fact that um we're born as singles most of the time but actually a lot of times we're not <laughs> you know identical twins it's a it happens rarely but when you add us all up there's a lot of us so um yeah, I don't know. I'm like, I just have a lot of, I feel like I've, it's hard <laughs> to distinguish yourself as an individual when like somebody looks exactly like you and um, it's like you try to be, it's like you have to try to be really different. Um, and that's actually why they say uh, when twin, they're like twins who are separated at birth and don't know about each other and they're like, oh wow, they have these like crazy similarities, like they married somebody with the same name and whatever. Um, what I've read was that, you know, when you're apart, 
you try less hard to be different. And twins are close together, they try harder to be different. So there's an effect in personality with that. But, you know, I think I'm losing track here <laughs> on how it relates to uh, this, uh, to the um, interview I'm just about to play. But I'm just saying this as for anyone who's listening who is a twin or is close with one. And I would assume that one or two, you know, <laughs> uh, I would assume that's most people. Um, you know, you could have a parent or you could be the parent of twins uh you could marry one or date twins uh you could be friends with them and they're like i said we're labeled high risk from birth and there's like a lots of things about our lives that uh impact us in ways that like people don't most people don't have to think about so just check in on them check in on your twin friends um but anyways, uh, this, this book, How to Do Nothing, it's good for everybody. It's good for everybody. So um, I'll just say that Jenny O'Dell has another book coming out uh, this year or next called Saving Time. It's a radical argument that we are living on the wrong clock. One that tells us time is money and that there are other ways of experiencing time that offer bold, hopeful possibilities for ourselves and the planet from the New York Times bestselling author of How to Do Nothing. So, yeah. I, that reminds me. Question from hell. Okay, I'll just say the question from hell because the question from hell is about time and the exact words are what are you doing with your extra hour from daylight savings time, which ends on 2 a.m. on Sunday, November 6th? And I'm so grateful for this question because as a person from Arizona who, where they don't have daylight savings time, I get so confused every year I'm in Chicago. This question is telling me I get an extra hour. That's something that I can never get straight and that it's going to happen 2 a.m. on Sunday, November 6th. Well, my extra hour, I'm just going to be at work. Like, the time of the market changes because it was starting at 7 a.m., which it's like the sun's not coming up till like 7.30. But I guess that's going to change now that there's daylight savings time. I don't know. I'll figure it out. But please, please respond to the question from how and I will read your answers after this interview that I have downloaded and I am pressing play on right now this is hell we are constantly busy always checking our phone always logged into whatever social platform we prefer we are forever occupied in a virtual reality that is nothing more than a marketplace that buys and sells us, turning us into nothing but goods for profits. And there's nothing we can do about it. Actually, we can do nothing about it and possibly rebel against the attention economy that insists we always watch. Here to help us learn the revolutionary power of doing 
absolutely nothing. Multidisciplinary artist and writer Jenny O'Dell is author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Welcome to This is Hell, Jenny. Thanks for having me. In one of Jenny's favorite projects, she, she, she created the Bureau of Suspended Objects, a searchable online archive of 200 objects salvaged from the San Francisco dump, each with photographs and painstaking research into its material corporate and manufacturing histories, which sounds fascinating. Jenny has exhibited her work all over the world. And you can find out more about Jenny by going to JennyOdell.com. So let's just start with a basic thing that people should know right now, and I think people may have already figured it out. But what is the attention economy? So the attention economy, I think on a literal level, is just the buying and selling of your attention. So, um, you know, there are obvious design elements to the platforms that we use that are intended to keep you on them for as long as possible, not to mention engaging with as much content as possible. Um, And so that's really just, you know, design and kind of marketing practice. But I, I, in the book, I also kind of tie it to a larger idea of the attention economy, Um, you know, just kind of more general ideas that if you don't express yourself constantly online, you no longer exist. Um, ideas of the personal brand um, or sort of staying relevant. Um, And so there's kind of like, I think, larger psychological or behavioral things that come out of those specific design elements. So why is it so successful, especially in light of knowing how it invades our privacy and having our right to privacy enshrined within the Constitution? What explains to you why that why social media is so successful if we're supposed to be putting so much value in our privacy? Um, I mean, I think some of it, like you know, to go back to those two levels, and some of it is probably just you know actual addictiveness, and you know, there's been a lot of other writing on that. But um, again, these things are designed to exploit certain um, you know uh, aspects of how we do or think about anything and and they're very well designed to to do that. So um, some of it is probably not intentional. Um, And, you know, there's also lots of books that have come out recently about, you know, how to break up with your phone or um, digital minimalism, like these kinds of, you know, these books wouldn't be written if it were easy for us to kind of walk away from these things. Um, But then I think, again, on that kind of broader level, um, there's a kind of privileging of the, of the obvious and the visible um, and this kind of idea that um, by engaging with these things and representing your life on them, that you're producing something. So you, you know, you might not think of that as productive, but you are kind of constantly like making utterances or, or posting things or um, just kind of like shouting into this void. Um, and uh, I think once that kind of becomes entrenched or once we kind of start to take that for granted, um, simply kind of like sitting by and not saying anything or not not rendering oneself visible in those spaces like starts to feel very unnatural. You write, nothing is harder to do than nothing. In a world where our value is determined by our productivity, many of us find our every last minute captured, optimized, or appropriated as a financial resource by the te- technologies we use daily. Is it possible to do nothing and survive? Doesn't capitalism insist we do something for our very survival at all times? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so there's, you know, I, I, I've been saying that my book kind of exists in a in a meantime where uh, we all are subject to economic realities, um, obviously with something like the gig economy um, or, you know, just even someone who has more than one job. Um, the, the fact that time is money, which is something, you know, philosophy I'm kind of trying to 
to work against like is just a reality like time is money for for a lot of people so um it's kind of like you know i i envision this book as like the the weeds that are growing in the in the cracks in the sidewalk you know it's like any kind of small space of resistance you can find like find that and kind of try to pry it open but um certainly not like envisioning but you know a bunch of people being able to do a bunch of nothing all the time <laughs> You write that we submit our free time to numerical evaluation, interact with algorithmic versions of each other, and build and maintain personal brands. For some, there may be a kind of engineer's satisfaction in the streamlining and networking of our entire lived experience, and yet a certain nervous feeling of being overstimulated and unable to sustain a train of thought lingers. Why does this concentration on our brand undermine our ability to concentrate? Um, I just think that it, you know, the, the, the philosophy of the personal brand exists in that kind of realm of the, the very short loop of attention. So, um, you know, if you spend, if you spend a certain amount of time on Twitter, like you start to feel crazy. I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. Um, and, uh, not to say that it's, it's not useful for some things, but, um, it's this kind of um, very myopic and sort of claustrophobic view, not only of, I think, what's happening, but of the self. So, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of, am, I express worry about in the book is, um, you know, this, I sort of believe that they're in an ecological model of the self where, you know, it's actually somewhat hard to draw a hard line around the boundary of the self and um, and to accept that makes you open to being surprised, to learning that you're wrong, to just, you know, simply learning new things, um, you know, becoming a different person. Um, and that that's sort of the opposite of the, of the personal brand and the kind of optimized streamlined self, which is, you know, comes out of this idea that you should, you know, be yourself, capital Y, right. Um, that you should have a, an identifiable and unchanging pattern of preferences. Um, and that ultimately that just makes it easier to advertise to you. So, you know, there is, I think, a reason for this kind of um, encouraging of something like a personal brand and this and this pattern of, of habits and preferences. So do we live in a state where we are always reacting, replying and responding, but never concentrating, contemplating or considering our actions deeply? Like kind of like a, I was thinking like a news outlet that has thought that prioritizes uh, being the first to report on a story over being the most accurate to be report on a story. Is that the kind of situation we find ourselves in that first is more important than best? Yeah, I think that's a really great comparison. Um, and, and it also points to this um, idea that, you know, we have to have a take on everything. So not even, you know, a news, news outlet at least has like a sort of reason, at least like a business reason to, to do that. But for even just individuals, I feel like you know, um, when something happens, a, a lot of people just feel like they are somehow obligated to have some kind of immediate, like, hot take on that, rather than just kind of sitting with that information for a while. Not just sitting with it, but, you know, getting more context, like, trying to get, you know, different sources of information or just waiting a while until that information comes out and then waiting even longer to decide, like, you know, what you think about that or or reflect on it or kind of synthesize it with other things that you know. I mean, I think we all know that things like that take time, and, and that's the sort of time that I feel is being taken away from us. You point out how already in 1877 Robert Louis Stevenson called busyness a symptom of deficient vitality and observed a sort of dead-alive, hackneyed people about who are scarcely conscious of living except in the exercise of some 
conventional occupation. I find that fascinating that this discussion was happening 142 years ago. You then add on a collective level, the stakes are higher. We know that we live in complex times that demand complex thoughts and conversations, and those in turn demand the very time and space that is nowhere to be found. Are we too busy to address the greatest challenges of our time, like climate change, racism, misogyny, inequality, and whatever else you'd like to add to that list? Are we too busy to make life now and in the future better? Is is that why we're not addressing these major problems, because we've just made ourselves too busy? Um, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I think there are people who are, are successfully doing that work, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, and then I also, I kind of don't want to put the onus too much on on us for being too busy because I think um, like one of the things that I'm kind of, or one of the ways I'm trying to distinguish my book from self-help is that, you know, like the, the typical kind of cadence of a self-help book is like, you have a problem and I, and this book will give you the tools to solve it like once and for all. Um, and if you don't solve that problem, that's, that's your fault. Um, and you, and it's like, you know, uh, you didn't get your money's worth because it's because you did it wrong. Um, and I think my book is very different in that uh, I am I am addressing it to the individual and I am talking about the kind of like promise and potential of on an individual level learning to redirect one's attention. But but I am also kind of situating the problem of the attention economy and of this kind of um, busyness um, as not only part of this cult of productivity that's kind of, I think, been uh, we've all been steeped in. Um, but also, again, to come back to the kind of like economic reality, um, people have uh, people are I think a lot of people are just trying to make it work. Right. Like um, there are a lot of people who are just actually very busy um, trying to make ends meet. Um, and so I, I would I don't know if I would characterize it as like, you know, us being or like making ourselves too busy to do this stuff. Um I think maybe there are, there are some cases in which we we subscribe to the kind of cult of productivity without needing to. So maybe that kind of falls into that category. But um, I, I know the book kind of came out of this observation that um, I think, again, there are people who are doing the activism. And then I think there are people, uh, there's maybe another like group of people who would like to be involved in that or maybe be involved more effectively and, and are feeling sort of like too distracted and disassembled to be able to do that. I love that idea of a cult of productivity. Why does communicating more lead to communicating worse? If we do it so much, why can't we do it well? Because this reminds me of how bad we are at critically consuming media, despite the fact that we consume so much media. So why does communicating more lead to communicating worse? I think it has to do with the the kind of style and maybe the the depth or lack of depth. Um, I in the end of the book, I, I quote a study that somebody did um, where she interviewed um, some activists um, on kind of like how social media had, had worked and not worked for them. And, and one of the things that they observed was that, uh, you know, po- actual political dialogue takes time. It kind of has like an incubation time and it also has, in a way, an incubation space. Um, and then and they also noted that um, it had sort of created this absurd situation in which um, you had to be like, like it's it's sort of one of those situations where if everyone is doing something, you have to do it. So if everybody is is constantly shouting, um, kind of and shouting like short things, right? Like short things that are designed to grab your attention, then like you also have to do that. Um, so you have this kind of situation, which I'm sure people you know feel sort of um, rueful about, but you kind of have to do it. Where you have um, you know a- activists 
causes having to take on the language of marketing um, because that is what we have all learned how to do. Like we've all learned how to kind of like try to in this mass of information, try to grab someone's attention. So it's, it's not even necessarily like a, an issue of what's being said. It's like how it's being said. And, and unfortunately that format doesn't allow for that kind of longer dialogue or just kind of a more nuanced idea um, in that same study, she she says that this is the reason that um, print media has still been really important in these circles is because it's kind of a slower media, a slower medium, and gives people kind of more time to discuss the ideas. Do you see that in the Green New Deal? This kind of branding that's trying to make something easy to understand with on social media platforms, but without looking at the intense substance of that idea. Um, I mean, I think some of it is is necessary, right? Like, I mean, even before the internet, um, any kind of movement uh, would, uh, you know, a large sort of nationwide movement, like had to find a way to sort of communicate their ideas to the, to the broad public, like, you know, to a person who has um, no context whatsoever. So I think um, some of that is on, on that sort of level is necessary. I think I'm talking more about like, like for one person who is, is, not necessarily like someone who is commandeering like the the image of the entire thing to like everyone, but but more just like yeah, one person who um, is just kind of throwing these things again into the void um, in in an effort to sort of uh, just stay afloat of the whole thing, um, or even just you know, I think that there are a lot of uh, and and maybe like by saying this, I should just like I should stop tweeting, but I think that there are a lot of tweets that just shouldn't exist, right? Like they're there are, I think you can be interested in, in following something like even, you know, something like the Green New Deal and, and you can be following it, you can be researching it, you can be getting more context and like, you know, none of that could be showing up online and it could look like you were, you know, quote unquote, doing nothing. Um, but, and you could be, you know, having those conversations offline, like in person um, or just engaging with kind of slower media or longer media. You quote the surrealist painter Giorgio de Chirico in the early 20th century predicting, predicting a narrowing horizon for activities as unproductive as observation. And you write that the writer, the thinker, he writes that the writer, the thinker, the dreamer, the poet, the metaphysician, the observer, he who tries to solve a riddle or to pass judgment will become an anachronistic figure destined to disappear from the face of the earth. What does society lose within itself when it loses the writer, the thinker, the dreamer, the poet, the metaphysician, the observer who tries to solve a riddle? Does that mean the end of dissent? Um, it probably would, yeah, in a way, mean the end of dissent. I mean, I think even more broadly, it like, you know, it's I'm biased, right? I'm an artist, um, and that's like my background, and it's what I teach, but... Um, I think it's also art that reminds us to look at things differently. And so, yeah, that, that encompasses something like dissent, but it also encompasses just like awareness, like, you know, just being aware of being alive and how strange the world is like these things that are um, so kind of profound and yet they're, they slip away very easily because um, we take them for granted. So um, I think it's, it's this whole, um, kind of arena of like ways of thinking that that are not so easily appropriated and super you know difficult to actually argue um, in concrete terms for the value of so I mean it's something that I have experience with as someone who teaches um, art to non-art majors at Stanford um, 
you know, and Stanford is very much a part of Silicon Valley. Um, I am constantly in the position of, of having to kind of, you know, make an argument of like why, why one should spend time on something as seemingly useless as art, especially when it's sort of not formulaic, it's not possible to really optimize, um, and it doesn't, it's not productive in ways that are very easy to point to. As you were saying, you're an artist. What kind of art does neoliberalism reward? Um, any art that looks like a product. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I think something I've really been observing and, and even like subject to as an artist is like, I, it's like everything needs, everything is turning into a product. Like you are turning into a product. The idea of the self is turning into a product ideas, utterances are products. And then, yeah, so then you have like art that is a product. Like, um, I mean, I mentioned in the book when I talk about being an artist in residence at the dump and I, and I do that project with all of the, the 200 objects and then it, like a huge amount of work that I did, but I didn't make anything. I, I created context and I created an installation, right? But, uh, but there was a woman at the, at the opening who was like, I'm really confused. Did you actually make anything or did you just put things on shelves? And um, I actually now really enjoy describing my art practices, putting things on shelves, <laughs> but um, it was very helpful for me. But that's that kind of attitude, right? Where it's like, okay, but right, where's the art? Like, where's the thing that I can buy? Like, where's the, where's the thing that I can like put on my wall or even not even necessarily that, but you know, like where's the big public sculpture? Um, and so it kind of, it's like um, any, any art that's like very um, easy to point to as like capital A art. Um, and then there's this, you know, all of these, and that's, you know, that's not recent, like throughout all of art history, there's artists have had to push against that conception of art. Um, it's just interesting to see like the sort of Instagram version of it happening now. Is doing nothing about putting a spanner in the works of our culture and society, is it doing essentially throwing clog, uh, clogs in the machine of capitalism? Is this kind of a throwback to the Luddites? Um, maybe I, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> it is in that I'm kind of like trying to find, um, uh, this, like I said earlier, this kind of space to, to pry open the cycle between, um, the attention economy and then the kind of like mentality that it produces. And, and then like, just this like endless kind of uh, positive feedback loop that happens. Um, and that one place to kind of pry that open is just in the space of your own mind um, and learning to kind of direct attention in, in different ways um, to different scales of time and space. And again, that's where I think art is really helpful. Um, I mean, I will say like, it's not, a, my book is not an anti-technology book. So um, I give examples of things like this, uh, this app called iNaturalist that lets you take pictures of plants and identify them. Uh, I would count even binoculars as a form of technology um, that I use very often when I go bird watching. Um, and at the end of the book, I talk about, um, I, I try to imagine like a utopian social network, which ends up being a non-commercial decentralized network that still lets us share information in kind of a, the, the ways that have always been like useful and fun for us, um, even before the internet, um, but have no financial incentive to like keep us on them all the time and are also not selling our data or selling things to us. Um, so I, you know, it's funny. I just saw ironically a tweet the other day that was this kind of um, reminder that the Luddites were not also not anti-technology. They were anti, you know, the, the ways in which technology was being used um, to, you know, dispossess and disempower people. 
Um, and so I guess I, I kind of maybe have that in common with them. You know, uh, you mentioned how you really love to do bird watching. Uh, we just talked to Bhaskar Sankara about his new book, The Socialist Manifesto. In his book, he has a fictional boss who is obsessed with bird watching. I don't know what's going on with the left in bird watching right now, Jenny, but there's something going on. <laughs> so, what impact does neoliberalism have on community? And what impact does it have on our demand? for a community that Facebook supplies. Is is social media a response to community being undermined by neoliberalism? Um, I think that's quite possible. Um, and it, and I think, unfortunately, you know, for the figure of, of a community, I, I keep, um, I find myself, I keep using this phrase like extreme bottom line mentality, where it's like the extreme, the sort of um, growth at all costs, um, and then like, yeah, this sort of trying to find the bottom line. Um, and, you know, I talk about microtasking websites in the book as well as this kind of like you, you have 24 potentially monetizable hours, not eight work hours. Um, and so I, yeah, I think, um, sorry, I completely lost my train of thought. It's like really early for me. <laughs> I haven't gotten up this early on a Saturday in a really long time. <laughs> Wait, where are you? Sorry. I'm in Oakland. Oh, I just not that early. Oh my God. Well, I'm sorry, sorry for keeping. I'm sorry for keeping up the question. No, that's okay. <laughs> I'll just. Uh, what happens to this? Kind of follows up. On. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I think. Um, so the extreme bottom line mentality, right? It's like this. If you, uh, as I was saying earlier, privilege is the visible and and kind of needing to have like deliverables, right? Like you need to have something to show for your time. Um, and again, this kind of turning everything, um, even like. Uh, parts of a community into products. Um, and that's really unfortunate because um, so much of, you know, in-person communication, even between two people is um, nonverbal. Um, so that's an example already of something that like, you know, doesn't, can't show up um, on, on something like a social media platform, but is, but is like a, you know, a whole source of information of like how we interact with people. Um, and, and I think there are just all kinds of examples of like, you know, even reasons that we would want to be a part of community that, that again, are not easy to pin down. Um, can't really put a dollar sign on that. Um, it's actually maybe even hard to describe. Um, so there are all these kind of, um, I don't want to call them ineffable. Like I think you can describe them. And I think again, like artists and writers can really help us there, but, um, there are all these things about community and ways that they work and reasons that we value them that, um, kind of can't be they don't show up in the capitalist framework they just they're like simply invisible because they can't be articulated in a way that fits into it i knew you were in oakland because you talk about it in your book and now i can't see the golden state warriors jersey without thinking of the jack london tree at least i know why that's there now. <laughs> so you write the yeah. point of doing nothing as you define it isn't to return to work refreshed and ready to be more productive but rather to question what we currently perceive as productive but is it up to us to determine what's productive? Isn't what's productive determined by people other than ourselves or the neoliberal globalized capitalism? Under capitalism, do we have a choice in determining what is productive or is it completely out of our hands? Um, again, I mean, I think it's kind of both. Um, I think there's um, just kind of like broader framework of what is considered productive that we are all kind of subject to. And then there's these kind of smaller moments in which I think um, that you can uh, kind of walk away from that value system, um, you know, probably not permanently. I mean, I talk about the communes, uh, like the 1960s um, in chapter two and kind of what happened with them as a way of kind of blocking the exits after you read chapter one, where you're like 
I want to move to the woods and live in a cabin and like never engage with capitalism again. Um, and then I'm like, okay, let's look at some people who tried to do that. Um, and so uh, I, I kind of end up with this weird compromise of like how to like disengage and engage at the same time. Um, I will say that I have been very um, like surprised by how many people in tech in Silicon Valley seem to have read this book so far. Um, and I uh, should probably talk to some of them <laughs> about what they think. I mean, you know, I, I sort of like optimistically feel like, you know, if this book spread around enough, like maybe there would someone in some position um, would maybe like start to question like what they think is productive. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's like a pie in the sky sort of thing, but, um, and it's not really not meant for that, but, um, but in the meantime, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, we don't really um, on the kind of level of just like daily existence and, and like, you know, how we work don't really um, control that. You write that deepening one's attention to place will likely lead to awareness of one's participation in history and in a more than human community. What do you mean by attention to place? Um, I mean, I mean it pretty literally. I um, It comes out of my own experience of, of having lived, you know, I've lived in the Bay Area my entire life and over the last two years have been really kind of floored by how little I knew about it. Um, and I, I don't think you have to have lived in a, a place for a long time to have this experience. It's just especially surreal for me because I've had, you know, like so much time at, and I haven't um, really learned about uh, specifically, you know, my bioregion. So I talk about bioregionalism as this kind of, um, you know, uh, idea within environmentalism of just being familiar with, uh, with the local ecology of where you live and the natural history. Um, and so, and then, you know, also just even local local human history. Right. Um, and so I've been really humbled by, um, that process of learning about this area. And it's also, I mean, I'm a person who in my art and otherwise, am just generally curious and I enjoy the feeling of curiosity. So it's also just been really, um, rewarding to learn about, um, all of the kind of different actors in this place that I live. And, and these things, you know, it's not, it's not inert, like, either in ecology or history, you're talking about like other things that are alive, um, that are around you or other, you know, other people who were alive, who lived in this place. Um, and so, uh, that's kind of, I mean, on a simple level, what I mean by attention to place is just like being aware, like looking at it at all. Um, and then kind of like starting to wonder about like what these things are and, and wondering about different patterns and like what makes this place different from another place. Um, and, and that to me is sort of resisting the, the placelessness of, of what we experience online where everything's sort of um, everything's the same and kind of um, lacking in spatial and temporal context. Um, like I contrast bird watching with looking at Twitter, where if you look at a bird and if you're a serious bird watcher, you need to know where you are. You need to know what time of year it is. Like all of these things will, will hugely narrow down like what it is that you're looking at and help you understand what it is and why it's acting the way it is. And then you go to Twitter and you have a piece of information that has like no facial temporal context. You're not even seeing things in chronological order necessarily. Um, and so uh, I think that this kind of attention to place can, can help us like learn ways of seeking and inhabiting contexts that we've lost from these online contexts. You write the villain here is not necessarily the internet or even the idea of social media. It is the invasive logic of commercial social media and its financial incentive to keep us in a profitable state of anxiety, envy, 
and distraction. We also are experiencing, as we've talked to many guests on our show, an epidemic of loneliness. There's even a ministry of loneliness in the UK. George Monbiot has been on the show to talk about it with us. A a whole bunch of people have talked to to us about it. Um, So what happens when we live in a society that is not only suffering an epidemic of loneliness, but also a plague of anxiety, as well as these other issues that you bring up? What happens to our society when we live in this era of anxiety and fear? Um, well, it's certainly, you know, not good for the individual and it's not good for the community. I suspect it's also not good for things like organizing, um, these things that kind of require us to reach out horizontally to other people around us. Um, and, you know, to come back even to, to tie it to the issue of place, um, one of the things I talk about is this idea that I, um, that I encountered in a different book about uh, species loneliness, which is this term that describes the kind of loneliness that the human species um, experiences towards other life forms. Um, And so I, you know, I just, I say that because for me, loneliness, um, it obviously occurs like within our human realm, but I think it also, um, it, it's part and parcel of a larger issue of being alienated from place, like um, not feeling at home. Uh, not feeling that you are connected to um, things that are outside of yourself. And um, I, I'm pretty sure that somewhere in, in the, the book, I use the word entombed, that like you're sort of in algorithmic recommendations sort of entomb you in this idea of yourself that becomes like ever more um, kind of hardened and isolated from all of the things that could kind of um, surprise you and change you. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, uh, my boyfriend and I talk all the time about like, this, you know, wave of people that moved to the suburbs at one point and like live these like super isolated lives. Um, of course, that's not everyone in the suburbs, right? But there was a kind of package deal that was offered at one point that was very popular for people where it's like, you know, I have my big McMansion and I have my car and I drive my car to my work and I kind of don't do things outside of that. And I don't talk to people who are outside of my family or like, you know, group of friends that I have some reason to be um, invested in. And, um, it, it feels, um, you know, speaking of algorithms, like that just feels like a living algorithm. Um, you know, there's no sort of like openness to, um, you know, things that are truly other from you um, that would force you to kind of rearrange like how you think about things. Um, and there's also, you know, not a lot of opportunities for curiosity either. Um, and again, like I obviously enjoy being um able to pursue my curiosity, but like, that's how I'm reminded that I'm alive and not dead is like being surprised by things, um, and, and being surprised by other people and other things. So I think that, uh, you know, that's one of, for me, one of the saddest things that kind of comes out of this loneliness epidemic. How much does the filter bubble that you talk about, how much does that filter bubble make us not have an engagement with things that are not, you know, planned and algorithmic, algorithmically distributed to us? Um, I think it has a pretty big effect. I mean, I, again, I'm sort of just judging from my own experience, but I, I contrast um, Spotify's Discover Weekly recommendations with the, the radio because um, my car doesn't have an aux input, so um, I can only listen to the radio. And I, I think three, three or four out of five of my presets are all um, community radio stations. Uh, or college radio stations. 
Um, and, and I mentioned that, you know, although every week I've never had a discover weekly playlist that was just like, you know, I thought was terrible or something that was like something I really didn't like. It's always like, it's always good. Um, and it's certainly good for like music to listen to in the background or something, but, um, you know, the radio is like, I'll hear something that I really don't like. And then I'll hear something that not only do I really like, I didn't even know I liked that genre of music. Like, it's just like this comet that came from outer space or something like, or I'm like, wow, like, not only do I not know this artist or genre, like, I don't even know myself because I didn't know that I like this and I don't, like, can't really explain it yet, you know? So, um, so that kind of like expands my sense of self. Um, and it, um, I, you know, I think the ego is one of those things where like, the more you stare at it, the more it dissolves, like you, you can't really, um, pinpoint it in this way and that maybe like some of this um desire for the personal brand and this like wholesale acceptance of these algorithmic recommendations like comes from this wish to have a kind of stable um almost product version of the self um as a way of kind of staving off this actual psychological reality that the self is a very unstable thing um and so my reaction to that is just like to welcome it and to and to like you know have encounters with lots of different things but um me and and that's certainly not how these things are sort of designed that's why i subscribe to the newspaper because that way they're not they don't have an algorithm for me individually they may have an algorithm for their audience but that way i stumble across articles that i would have never have gotten through the other filters and i do that with you know the new york times i get it at uh, the office and then I buy local newspapers wherever I go. Small town newspapers are just fantastic because you don't have those filters and you're able to get the information, get the news that it would be kept from you otherwise. We're speaking with multidisciplinary artist and writer Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. How much is our virtual world and attention economy distracting us from the destruction of our real world, whether it's climate change or, for instance, the U.S. is in eight wars right now. And I, I seriously doubt anybody can name them, although we should all memorize them. Is social media a distraction from even our nation being at war? Um, I think it probably is. I mean, if you, you know, to go back to that, the very first sentence of the book, nothing is harder to do than nothing. I mean, part of the reason for that, I think, is that um, it's hard to sit with even a vague idea of what's happening right now. Um, just climate change by itself, right? Like without even anything else is already um, something that, you know, exists on a scale that almost like threatens to like break your brain if you, if you try to think about it. Um, and I, I, um, I think that in a lot of ways, like it's very natural for like the mind to want to go anywhere other than that, like anywhere other than, than something that's really uncomfortable um, whether that's like, you know, something that's happening in the country or, you know, internationally or just something that's happening like to you, right? Like if you, there's something bad happening in your life, like that's not a place where your your mind kind of wants to sit. And then you have this super, you know, addictively designed thing in your pocket that um, is an immediate portal to um, not only something else, but like many, many other things. Um, and, you know, I talk about context collapse in the book at the end where, um you know, you have things that are horrifying next to things that are hilarious next to, um, things, you know, things that have nothing to do with each other, all kind of stacked up next to each other. And it's, 
as much as we sort of complain about that and how distracting it is, it, it is very effective for a mind that's kind of trying to get away from from bigger problems or even, you know, um, we were talking about loneliness, like even to get away from that feeling of loneliness to feel like you're engaging with something. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it had a huge, you know, um, you know, it was contributing a lot to this kind of avoiding, avoiding something that's bigger, harder to talk about more nuanced, and, um, actually thinking about how to fit yourself into that and, and what you should be doing, uh, or saying, um, takes a little bit more time and more conversations to figure out. You tell this story, and I was telling my girlfriend on the way here, so i now got to repeat it because she absolutely loved it. You tell the story of the useless qi from the Zhuangzi, a collection of writings attributed to Zhuangzhou, a 4th century Chinese philosopher. A carpenter sees a tree of impressive size and age, but the carpenter passes it by, declaring it a worthless tree that has only gotten to be this old because its gnarled branches would not be good for timber. Soon afterward, the tree appears to him in a dream and asks, are you comparing me with those useful trees? The tree points out to him that fruit trees and timber trees are regularly ravaged. Meanwhile, uselessness has been this tree's strategy. This is of great use to me, the tree says. If I had been of some use, would I ever have grown this large? The tree balks at the distinction between usefulness and worth made by a man who only sees trees as potential timber. The tree says, what's the point of this? Things condemning things. You, a worthless man, about to die. How do you know I'm a worthless tree. One of the taglines for our show is live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. What happens when we confuse or conflate worth with usefulness, price with value? Um, I mean, I think it just, you know, I'll, I'll add at the end of that story or that something that I, that I, it's actually the beginning of the story, but I talk about it at the end of that description is that the, the, the story notes that the tree is so big that it's shading, you know, like many, many teams of oxen and, and, uh, you know, animals. And that, you know, the, the, it's sort of the other punchline of that story is that the tree is actually very, <laughs> it's very um, useful and that it's caring for all of these other, you know, hundreds of beings. Um, and so that makes this kind of, you know, the, the dream sequence even funnier. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, that, that story really, illustrates how um, a narrow concept of, of usefulness um, just hugely overlooks all of these other things that I think we, you know, instinctively know are useful. I mean, I talk about care and maintenance also in the book as things that are undervalued um, because they have, you know, not, you know, they've been done for free for a long time by women. Um, they, they've sort of invisible, they don't, uh, invisible and, you know, being hidden in the domestic sphere. Um, but they're the, the things, the very things that keep life alive. Um, they're the very grounds for life. Um, and so there are all kinds of things like that, especially under that, that category of care that, um, are the things that make everything else possible that don't show up in that kind of, um, that value system. Um, it's, you know, there's so much that, um, just can't be it, even like sleep, you know, it's a funny example, but uh, I was really inspired by this book called 24 seven um, by Jonathan Crary. And I think the subtitle is late capitalism and the ends of sleep. Um, but he talks about, you know, like sleep is this, this thing that the this sort of last remaining vestige of like human animality that can't be appropriated. And it explains all of these like assaults on, sleep on our need for sleep and trying to do away with it. Um, this developments of like drugs to kind of eliminate the need for sleep. 
Um, because like from it's again, it's like if it's very similar to the carpenter in that story where if you're a person who only sees time as money and you only see it as potentially um, producing outcomes or, you know, deliverables or products, um, sleep appears useless. Of course, we all know sleep is not useless. And I think, you know, I feel like I have the humility to, to like uh, allow that sleep is useful in ways that I don't understand. And I might not ever understand. And that's fine. I don't need to be able to articulate that. Like I recognize the, the necessity of something like sleep. So I think there are a lot of things that are kind of similar to that. You uh, discuss what you call refusal in place as you look to the history of refusal and you try to show how that creative space of refusal is threatened in a time of widespread economic precarity when everyone from Amazon workers to college students see their margin of refusal shrinking and the stakes for playing along growing. Thinking about what it takes to afford refusal, I suggest that learning to redirect and enlarge our attention may be the place to pry open the endless cycle between frightened, captive, attention and economic insecurity. How can enlarging our attention address precarity? Um, I think there's a couple of different ways. I think just on the kind of individual level, um, again, you know, I said earlier that, that um, there are certain, you know, economic realities that a lot of us um, in different ways are, are subject to, but um, at least in my experience, I have found that there are these kind of very interstitial moments in which I actually can get away with um, thinking um, or paying a kind of different kind of attention than what I'm, what's being, uh, or what's these things are trying to extract from me. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, you know, some of the stuff is involuntary, but some amount of it, I think for some people is voluntary. And it's kind of like finding, finding those moments where you have a small margin to be able to disengage just, you know, again, within the space of your own mind. Um, and then the thing that I sort of like hope for from that is that if more, you know, if more people are able to disengage, even in just some small way, again, not like moving out to the woods or, or like, you know, uh, just deciding to just sort of like give up or like forsake the world entirely or, or quit all social media and stop reading the news. Um, but that if, if more people were able to kind of um, find more agency in the way that they direct their attention, that it might make um, some conversations, uh, or it might, you know, remind us of the value of certain types of conversations and reflections and help us have them. Um, again, you know, I end the book with that kind of idea of the, the non-commercial social network, but I, I look at the kind of history of organizing and how much concentration that takes, how much focus, um, again, on the level of the individual and, and collectively, and these kind of um, small, small groups, like these kind of uh, large, uh, you know, federations of small groups. So these small groups in which people are able to have those nuanced conversations and um, and feel recognized and accountable and have a context for what they're saying versus on something like Twitter. Um, and then, and then the kind of like larger order coordination of those groups in order to kind of share information and, and decide on um, different forms of action. So um, I think, you know, I would hope that my kind of suggestions around attention would, would fit in somewhere there that it would make something like that 
um, easier, not to mention just remind us of the value of those kinds of conversations in groups. We have been speaking with multidisciplinary artist and writer Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny has exhibited her art all over the world. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at the Genitor, that's the underscore J-E-N-N-I-T-A-U-R. And you can find out more about Jenny at JennyOdell.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Jenny, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write that your most serious grievances with the attention economy, namely its reliance on fear and anxiety and its concomitant logic that disruption is more productive than the work of maintenance of keeping ourselves and others alive and well. How does the attention economy lead to disruption which doesn't consider, doesn't care about its impact on the wellness of ourselves or others. How does social media lead us to have less compassion for others? Um, I think, you know, for, for someone using social media, um, it's just, you know, an issue of distraction and, and being caught in that filter bubble, which is, again, reinforcing the ego. I mean, I think even when we're engaging with these things and we feel, you know, things that feel bad for us, like anxiety or um, just kind of uh, paralysis that's still, that's actually a very self-centered experience um, because it's centered around us. Um, and it, again, it's not allowing that space for encounters with things that are truly surprising or outside of what we asked for, or what, or what we expected. Um, but I think on the level of, you know, where this technology is coming from, I mean, you use the word disrupt, like, um, again, I, I grew up in basically the middle of Silicon Valley and something that I, I definitely try to push against in the conclusion, which is called manifest dismantling, it's supposed to be the opposite of manifest destiny, um, is, I, you know, I think the, I, the philosophy behind disrupt is a really, um, uh, it's one that comes from a certain arrogance of not observing what is already there. So, so much of my book is this kind of plea to observe, like, what is already here, like, what has already happened, who is already here, right? Um, and so I think social media is one of the kinds of technologies that comes out of this, um, you know, like I'm sure you've read the articles, like where you have a startup here that is like, Hey, we, we have this company where we have this like really big car that picks people up on their way to work and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then people are like, cool, that's a bus. You invented a bus. Um, so there's, um, this kind of like the disrupt comes, I think from this mentality of like kind of creating an imagined blank slate or just thinking that the slate is blank already and then just innovating this thing on top of it that is this like brand new shiny product um, all the while kind of ignoring the all of the texture of kind of what was already there. Um, so on that side of things, I think it's also um, not great in terms of like, uh, you know, working with the communities that are, that are already here, um, both human and non-human and, and being attentive to them. And you have this great concept of bioregionalism, and our our listeners have to definitely check out your book, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny, thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a, another fantastic work. Two books in a row on our show that were just really great. So thank you very much, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more hell, visit thisishell.com.
hello again. This is producer Lindsay Gorey. I hope that you just enjoyed listening to that interview with Jenny O'Dell from 2019 on her book, How to Do Nothing. There were lots of parts of that interview I enjoyed, but there's so much more in the book. So please check it out and check out her book coming out in the future, Saving Time. I think she opened up that interview saying how she's working against thinking of time as money. And now it sounds like she wrote a whole book about that. So we hope to have Jenny returning on the show later next year to talk about that new book. But yeah, from deep listening to paying attention to place and you know all the performance art she talks about in that book that's really great uh i like the bird watching stuff i like to forage that's that's what foraging does you know it makes you pay attention to where you are what time of year it is what plants are available i mean it's actually the same thing as bird watching because the birds are foraging (laughs) the birds are looking for food and they're looking for warmth so eat bird food uh anyways i liked i like that book like she said it's kind of an anti-self-help book i read too many self-help books earlier in my 20s (laughs) i'm glad uh i'm past that but yeah i mean self-help like i was saying earlier going on my twin rant the self all of us selves are uh, tied to a bunch of other people. So, you know, it's hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, heal up, heal up yourself with your bootstraps. When there's all this other stuff going on, war, violence, we really don't have enough space in our daily lives to unpack it all. On that note, Uh, At least Daylight Savings Time is apparently going to give us an extra hour to do that unpacking, so they say. And I just, again, from Arizona, I'm just, I know everybody is kind of on the debate right now about whether we're going to keep Daylight Savings Time or not. And get rid of it. It just doesn't make sense. Like, okay, yeah, it gets, it starts to get dark early every single year. You know, it's part of being on a spherical object revolving around a sun at a certain angle. <laughs> and, you know, if it gets if it's darker in the morning, then maybe we should just get up later. Why do we got to change the clock? That just Anyways, <laughs> the question from hell this week, what are you doing with your extra hour from daylight savings time which ends on 2 a.m., which ends at 2 a.m. on Sunday, November 6th? So we only have four four answers on Facebook. I don't think that Alex read any yesterday, so I'm going to read them all. Although I will say shout out to Alex for filling in yesterday. Sebastian was sick, returning from his trip. And I was cracking up listening to that episode yesterday, listening to the Halloween spooky sounds and Alex's chipper voice just bouncing all, all over <laughs> all over the spooky sounds it was really funny um and uh always nice to hear alex's voice again 
So anyways, we have a response here from Laddie Scott O. <laughs> what are they going to do with their extra hour when daylight savings end time ends on Sunday? They're going to have one more hour of panic. <laughs> oh, yes. That sounds about right. <laughs> Just one more hour of that like distracted, overly stimulated, uh, panic, anxiety feeling that keeps you from focusing on the novel you're supposed to be writing. All right, our next response. What is Fabio AJ doing with their extra hour? <laughs> Your mom. Good one. <laughs> That's always a good answer every week. All right, so uh, what are you doing with your extra hour from daylight savings time? Watchik R is sweating a lot. <laughs> and our last response here on the Facebook from Sloan T. What are they doing with their extra hour from daylight savings time? They're staring into the abyss with existential dread. So I guess all of us are kind of on the same page here. Uh, and I'm glad I played that interview just now because it sounds like it could help. So I'm going to leave. Looks like there's some five responses on Twitter. I'm just going to leave them for Dan to read y'all next week. And I believe that's all I really need to do here today. So thank you for listening to This Is Hell. And we will talk again soon. Bye. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>